Hey guys, so not in my usual uh, studio, not in the podcast studio because um, I'm not in Bali. I'm traveling around America as I have been for pretty much the last month, I think. I taught a, a lengthy retreat that was two weeks and then had some, uh, some downtime afterwards, which I uh, went down to Louisiana, down towards New Orleans. Um, and yeah, here I am in a hotel. My plane actually back to Europe where I got to go to do the uh, Sweden retreat got cancelled and then rebooked, delayed. There's those flight delays at the moment, isn't it? Everything's still a bit disrupted from COVID, I think. So it got delayed and uh, so I'm here in a hotel for 48 hours, basically. So yeah, that's why not the usual location. Slumming it in America as usual, <laughs> as I do. So yeah, been around in America for a few weeks. It's, it's quite a contrast, actually, before I talk about the main subject I want to discuss, is it's quite a contrast this year, just because last year when I came here, last summer I was here, yeah, well, basically about 12 months ago, I was here in America, and uh, it felt very tense. <laughs> it felt very uptight, more uptight than I'd ever known America to be. Now, America, obviously, well, like the rest of the Western world as well, I guess, but I think America's kind of at the forefront of many of these things. America's always been a little, in my experience, polarized, um, a little divisive between sort of political views and groups of people. And I think, um, as with many other countries, that sort of divisiveness divide between people is almost hitting like 50-50, isn't it? That's the problem, is once you get a kind of political divide that much, like half the people, then it becomes very, becomes very difficult for there to be a consensus on anything. And then, you know, that's happening globally. And obviously, Obviously, that's generated to a large extent by the powers that be, whoever they may be, are um, using media and what have you to essentially generate that divisiveness. So last year when I got here, uh, it actually felt really uptight. Everybody was arguing. I went from, you know, I was in hotel bars and whatever, eating in the evenings, and, and actually saw <laughs> arguments breaking out between complete strangers over the bar about... I think it was abortion last year, wasn't it? Roe versus Wade, was that a year ago? I don't know, something like that. Or red versus blue, that sort of Trump-Biden divide is still very much here, isn't it? And that was last year, everybody was really uptight, but this year it feels a lot more relaxed. But I think it was, I don't think America's any less polarized. I think it's just further from COVID. I think, you know, we've been a year and a half out of that COVID era where there were still lots of lockdowns and fear and paranoia and arguments between mask wearers and non-mask wearers and all of that stuff that went on, vaccine confusion. And we're a little bit out of that, so much so that you hardly even hear about it anymore. It's almost like they don't want to discuss something that was <laughs> possibly not what it, they sold it as in the first place, isn't it? Odd that. But a year, over a year out from it, everybody seems to relax a little bit. So I did see a little bit of arguments between people about um, politics, but not much, not much actually. I felt a lot more relaxed. Uh, which is nice because I didn't really enjoy my experience last year. I've always found America to be an entertaining country to come to, and I have a, a great many friends in this country, some people I love very much. Um, but last year, <laughs> last year, it was just like, oh my God, everyone hates each other. And I, I was just really pleased that that's changed a bit, because if that had been the new norm for America, then uh, that wouldn't have been a good turn of events for this country. But it's funny when you look on the media from outside America especially, or maybe inside, I guess, but certainly from a non-American looking at the media, it always paints America as this, like it's still caught in this great culture war. And of course, conservatives and Democrats on both sides are benefiting from sort of showing this culture war to be a major thing. And, and sure, I'm, I'm sure there are those difficulties around, but it, it wasn't my experience of everyday people. Um, anymore while I was while I was down here between the two places I was in, which is basically well three places: Maryland, Washington D.C., and Louisiana, which is quite a stark contrast between the other two places I was in. Culturally, very different, but in none of those places, the what do you call it, the regular people, I suppose, just living their life. It didn't really feel like that tension was there anymore. So that was really nice. Um, it's good, I, and I I think that as people living in these worlds. I think it's important for us to understand that whilst there is divisiveness, of course, there is a separation of ideas between people, the version of it shown in the media is not reality. Like the level of hate and conflict they show on social media or on mainstream news, they're not, it's not really um, 
it's not representative of what it's like in real life. I think that people's personal experiences might be like the media, but probably not, you know. There's kind of this idea, isn't it, that you take a country like America, but of course it could apply to Europe as well, a place this size, and say it has, I don't know, three riots, for example, or three big bad events, or, okay, a riot that gets destructive. Now, in a country the size of America, it's not very much, you know, the amount of people, that's a, statistically a very small number of riots. No riot is good, it's always destructive, but it's not very many and it's a, a small area. But if you take those three riots and you put them all on the news at the same time or in the similar kind of time, scan and, time scale and then you put them next to each other, of course, when you watch the media, it will appear like the entire country is rioting. It's what you see, it's like, oh my God, there's riots everywhere. But that's not really the case, you know, and... Uh, I think that rule or that way of understanding media should be applied to most things. You know, if three people get beaten up or mugged, put them on the social media or whatever, or the news, it can appear like a lot of people are or something. And a lot of people I spoke to while I've been here who are nervous of living in America, and I'm not saying there's nothing to be scared of, but there is an underlying fear amongst many people about the sort of upending of society and it will collapse any minute and people on the other political party could, I don't know, do something terrible that results in their death. Actually, it's, it's not that bad, you know. It doesn't, when I speak to them, it doesn't actually match their reality. It doesn't mean that politically things aren't very tricky right now. Obviously, the militaristic saber-rattling, or worse, of the people in charge is not awesome at the moment, to say the least, but it's still not uh, representative of what most people's experience, at least here in this part of the world, a little bit different if you're in a war zone, but in this part of the world it doesn't quite match uh, what they're trying to show you at the moment. It was interesting, just rambling about America now, and I apologize, just because I've been here, and it, it, is, it is a cultural difference, culturally very different place from, um, from Europe, and certainly a culturally very different place from Bali, where I live, so it's, yeah, it is interesting for me to see this, but it, um, yeah, there's like a there's like a thing I'm noticing, you know, like there's very much a, a push in modern Western media, but definitely in American media, um, which Europe gets, of course, to kind of open people up and make them more emotional, to be more emotional, more in touch with your feelings, more in touch with whatever arises from the heart. And you, and you see those kind of terms all the time, isn't it? Follow your heart, open your heart, follow your emotions, follow your dream, whatever, you know, all these things. And it's very much pushed in sort of mainstream media and in the culture and even chatting to some of the people here who weren't that far out of school because they weren't that old, uh, much younger than me, they were they were kind of telling me or, or their experience at least, I don't know if it matches the whole country or, or the whole of the Western world, but their experience was that in their education they're kind of encouraged to fully experience their feelings and things. So it's this kind of attempt to have a sort of real emotional intelligence or an emotional study. And I, I think that's... Um, great in some ways, like interest, it's not good to deny who you are um, or to have no ability to touch that side of your nature. But there is a problem there in that if you then open up to all your emotions and all your feelings and then you have a media on social media or in mainstream media, what they call legacy media now, if you then have a media that's just filled with stories of fear, terror, anger, anger, division, like it it's not like you ever see a happy story on the news, is it? And, <laughs> and then you go down into like sort of trivial news about celebrities, which I think is fairly trivial. We've gone from world events <laughs> down to local events down to trivia. Well, at that stage, it's still miserable because it's normally just people pulling apart celebrities and saying how terrible they are, or sometimes they'll bump them up and then tear them down afterwards. So on every level of the media you're watching, it's just misery, misery, misery. Now, this is, I think, a part of the problem that I see is you can't have a group of people or a bunch of people, <laughs> a society, that you tell to be emotionally open and very emotionally aware and very connected to their feelings and then bombard them all day every day from their TV or from their phone or their laptop, probably the phone, isn't it, most of the time. You can't then bombard them with misery, fear, terror and, and anger. You can't do that. Well, you can, and they are. That's what's happening, isn't it? So consequently, people are becoming well, more miserable, more unhappy, more angry. That's what's going to happen. Here's your feelings and here's some things that are going to make you feel a certain way. It's like you have to, uh, you can't open people up to their feelings and their emotions responsibly 
ethically, in a decent way, whatever the word is there, unless you then present to them like a happy view of the world as well. You know, you have to balance out the negativity, war, finance crashing, racism, everyone hates you. You can't have that unless you balance it out with some positive news about this is going well, look at these things we're doing, human connection is going up, blah, blah, blah. If you put those kind of things in, people would be a lot healthier, but it's not what I see. So although the divisiveness or the the pent-upness that I saw last time I was here was kind of lessened, there is still a, a great fear of sort of feeling of hopelessness amongst many people that I think is interesting and sad at the same time and also inaccurate because while there might be terrible things going on in the world, there are also incredibly beautiful things going on in the world and people's actual experience of life is often not matching what is presented to them once again in the media. So when I was talking to students on the courses and I was advising them, not during the course when I was teaching a subject, but often during social events or sat for dinner with them or whatever, just chatting with me, you know, I was kind of trying to encourage them to make sure that no matter what they see on the media, no matter what they watch, which is all cool or whatever entertainment they go for, they should also spend time to recognize what is their direct experience of life and direct experience of their community and direct experience of their family and their friends and their loved ones. Because the more you can tune into like the positives within your direct experience of life, which is generally more accurate for your particular life anyway, the more you're going to balance out some of those issues from constantly seeing that negativity. Because you've also got to remember, you're not really, like as human beings, as animals, whatever we are, spiritual beings, animals, who cares, <laughs> somewhere on that spectrum, you can't, we weren't really supposed to know all of the trouble that went on around the whole globe. Obviously not. Like we didn't, you know, when you were when we had cultures or tribes, obviously right back in the day, through to townships and things, news news was more local. And then at some stage you did get then international news coming in and world news and things like that. And when I was a kid, which is increasingly a fair while ago now, I guess. Uh, time rolls on, you know, we only had a certain amount of channels and a certain amount of news and there was no internet. So, okay, what you were given was propaganda that was told to you by the government. We all knew that. We knew that it wasn't an honest version or at least my family made sure from a young age I recognized that the propaganda slash news you were given wasn't an accurate um, vision of the actual world. It was what your governments wanted you to see because there was a vested interest in it. Um, I've always grown up with that knowledge. But you knew less events, you know, it's like, I know there's a war going on here, I know there's a problem here, I know there's a financial thing, but it was all very like, this is the important thing that you're supposed to know, you know, so you can stay in touch with the world and then you live your life. Whereas these days, because of phones, um, which some of you might be watching this on or, or through your laptop or social media, you might know like every terrible thing that's happening around the globe all at the same time. A guy gets gored to death by a rhino in the middle of I don't even know where rhinos are from. If I say Africa somewhere, is that racist? I'm not sure or incorrect or just show my ignorance. I don't know. Somebody gets gored to death by some random animal like a rhino or something like that. And we know about it. We know about it from social media. And then <laughs> maybe on the same day, someone gets run over by a bus and people die in a, very sadly, in a submarine that went wrong over and looking at the Titanic or whatever. You know, like all these little deaths going on around the place, which are individually very terrible things. But... Remember, as humans, you weren't really supposed to know about it. We didn't know about them, but because of social media, now we know about them. We see them straight away, a death, death, there's another death, there's another death. So you're kind of plugged into all of the catastrophes that happen around the world at the same time. So there's always a heightened feeling of these terrible disasters and a heightened feeling of the danger that's around at any given moment. Whereas, if you remember, once again, they're quite spread around the globe and they're not necessarily part of our direct experience of life if we're, if we're lucky. So that kind of, that's all part of the downside of connectivity and downside of media and things like this, you know. And uh, yeah, it was interesting having conversations with people about this in America and also seeing some of the resistance I got to that kind of view. There was like a view from people that they have to know all of the little nitty gritty of all the suffering that goes on and I don't agree. I don't see what purpose it serves. I don't think a person should walk around blinkered, but we should also recognize that there's a certain degree of, you know, 
terrible news overload, whatever the word is, that the brain can receive at any given time, especially if you're a very emotional person or someone who's very heightened with stress already, it's probably not very good. So yeah, saw lots of that. And I think being in America, which is obviously the forefront of media these days, and also politically, the place that much of the Western world is looking to, English politics is just kind of fucking dull, isn't it? It's one suited inbred after another, <laughs> taking power until they get bored of that suited inbred and then they kick them out from some misdemeanor. So not very interesting. So most people tend to be watching the American uh, politics and also because America obviously has a, an overriding influence on what happens in much of the world. Um, that's why I think it's very interesting to see this kind of division in the media because it affects everybody um, and affects everybody's views. It's like, it's like this, you know, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm off topic. Uh, I went to the capital today um, to, I don't even know what it's called. <sighs> sorry, I don't know. It's like a, where Abe Lincoln is, you know, you go inside the uh, statue, you go up the stairs, there's a big building with the pillars and there's a big statue of Abe Lincoln sat in it. Is it called the Mall? Maybe it's called the National Mall, which is weird because the mall's a shopping centre to me. Maybe it's called that, I'm not sure. You know what it is, I'm sure. And I walk in, the first thing I think is this Planet of the Apes, you know, one of the 80s, 70s, 80s ones, um, because they replaced this head with an ape, if you haven't seen it. But I go in there, and, and outside the front of the um, bottom of the steps was a, 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 a what was it, an anti-abortion, pro-life, that's what they call it, a pro-life demonstration. So what you had was people speaking like Michael Knowles, who is a Daily Wire host, I know him from online, uh, and some other people who I didn't recognize, but apparently were sort of leading conservative and religious figures. And it was a very patriotic sort of pro-life thing, lots of fists in the air, USA, USA, and national anthem, sung really badly, actually, really badly. I don't know if they got to do it, but it wasn't good. Uh, and they were sort of, you know, pro-life. Um, and there was a group of people in, and the police in a cordon around it. And then outside of that was the pro-abortion. What's that mean? Anti-life sounds wrong, doesn't it? I guess it's not anti-life. It's not what I mean. Pro-life and pro-abortion, I guess. Yeah. Uh, activists outside. Now, both of these crowds were relatively small, actually. They weren't that big. Um, and they were fairly friendly. I even saw like people from the pro-life um, demonstration walking out the path. Uh, to go get some supplies in, from the, the cafe in. and they had to walk through the pro-abortion march and it was actually fairly polite like you know they were saying uh, you know they were giving their viewpoint and da, 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 but it didn't really get very heated not very well not very much you know and small crowds but the, what I noticed that the way the cameras were set up I'd never been to one of these kind of things you know I noticed the way the cameras were set up they were kind of targeted so you couldn't see the edge of the crowd so you couldn't see the the size of it. And there was a, a reporter reporting for some TV channel or online thing these days, who knows, stood next to it. And I, I could hear what they were saying into the mic. I'm probably in the background, actually, of the, their report. Um, but they, they were saying that it's very tense here. Um, the lady was saying it's very tense. It's a little agitated. The police are here to keep the peace. It wasn't that at all. It was quite peaceful. There was obviously two groups of people that disagreed with one another. And both groups are welcome to share their view. I think America is, you know, quite proud of its free speech kind of things. Um, and yeah, I mean, the whole thing was quite rational. I've seen more uh, uncomfortable protests in the UK, actually, a, a lot more tense. So it was all right here. You know, I, I should probably point out I wasn't at the pro-life march, nor was I at the pro-abortion march, actually. I was visiting Abe Lincoln uh, to because of my love of Planet of the Apes. That was why I was there. So I, I didn't have a view either way. But yeah, so it was, once again, it was like a, a show of how different the protest, march, whatever it is, two groups of people having a different view, how different it is from how I expect it's going to be presented on the news. And I'm sure many people watching on the news, if they're told it was very tense, it's very tense, it's very tense, are going to get very, very worked up um, by... <laughs> by hearing it, and that will create more tension in the first place than the actual march did. That's just what the media do. Terrible. As a, as a, that's really bad. It's terrible. We shouldn't do that. It's, it's so inflammatory, and I don't think that's what's needed right now in the world. I think it'd be a lot better if people could rationally discuss something um, and then rationally show the actuality of what something was. So I, yeah, I was there. I saw that, and I, I think that 
I think this is important for cultivators. I think cultivators to recognize influences from the outside. And this is why I was talking about it with students. Um, and some of them are a bit resistant to it. Some of them are very interested in the idea. And it wasn't just me talking, it was a back, back and forth. One person was very angry at it, actually, which I thought was really interesting. I think the word is triggered. But they were mostly angry because I said I'd never voted, which I don't, um, never have, never will. And I, that seemed to be a bone of contention for them. But what I was trying to say, you know, that as cultivators, I think it's important because you need to understand all of the influences upon you. What are all of the influences that form your view, form your shape of the world, the shape of who you are, the shape of your reality, your, all of your beliefs and everything, they're all a part of who you are. And, and too often people are sort of unaware of where those views come from. They think they came up with it themselves, of course, but often those views are from your parents or from your culture or from your school, your peers, um, all those kind of things that they're kind of inherently part of. It's not your idea. And, and an easy way to see this is if you take someone who's a very traditional left versus right, blue versus red, something. Well, I don't know if traditional is the right word because the view is that they're shifting around a bit, isn't it? But say you're a very staunch liberal or you're a very staunch conservative, something I've noticed that if I ask your viewpoint on an issue like, uh, I don't know, abortion or guns or whatever, who cares? If I, or trans at the moment, isn't it? Which is the big one. Whatever you, whatever you, when you get their viewpoint on that issue, very quickly you know all of their viewpoints on every other issue. It's usually what I find. There's, it's very predictable. There's no variation. As you think this on this, okay, I know all of the views for all of those people. And I can do that for left or right. It doesn't make any difference. I know what their views are. And it's very rare you meet someone who doesn't match that pattern. Now, I would actually think that no political stance is definitely correct. Um, and that there are countless variations in how someone can perceive the world or have a view on something. So therefore, there should be variations. You should get people that don't fit into one of those two camps. They should have a view that's a little bit more, uh, maybe towards the liberal sense, and then a view that's a little bit more towards the conservative sense. And while you, of course, will have some people that are very much down the line for both those parties, you should get a large spectrum of people with a large spectrum of views that kind of take ideas from both sides. But you don't meet them. I mean, I match that. I would say I match that. There are some of my views that are more towards liberal. Or there's some of my views that are more towards conservatism, for sure. But it, there's not many people I meet like that. And that would already suggest to me that people aren't really forming their own views so much as being given them. Um, so as a cultivator, we need to recognize that and understand that if part of developing ourselves, and even part of later on, learning to not use that as the main point of orientation for who we are, has to begin with understanding which views are our own and which views are given to us by something, and then or, or by an outside source, and then understanding that they're only views and actually they're not actually a reality. They're not the be-all and end-all of our actual true identity. But you can't really, I don't think you can really get to what we call a true identity, from a spiritual perspective, whatever label you want to put on that, until we understand the various sources of the creation of the false identity, if you like, or the identity that we normally have at the forefront of our, our being. So it, it's quite a lengthy process in that front, but to do that, sorry, it's quite a lengthy process to do that, to do that work, to break down all of our views and identifications and points of reference, points of perspective, and know where, what the source of them is, what the sources of those things are. It's a lengthy process for sure. And it, but it's important, it shouldn't be ignored because it's not just politically, it's also then to understand where many of our fears come from and many of our angers and many of our divisions. It happens on that level on, on politics, it happens with regards to what the media give you, but then on another level, it also happens within smaller communities. Um, the martial arts community is the same when people discuss with things with each other on media that they share views that are rarely their own. It's normally what someone else has told them or what the consensus is within a particular group <laughs> and so on and so on and so on until the aggregate of who we are is formed by all of these outside sources that we then mistakenly believe to be you know, independent or original. 
if, if people could get through some of those or, or start to understand them, I think a lot of the conflict would also start to break down as well. Certainly as I understood more about myself and the sources of my viewpoints, I certainly calmed down a lot um, <laughs> as a person, for sure. So this discussion on the American course, um, where we kind of explored this idea, was actually mainly over lunch table, actually between a, a bunch of students. But uh, what it evolved into then was really sort of um, a discussion of one of the key sort of rules or principles behind these arts or developing in these arts. And that's really what I was planning on talking about in this podcast, but never mind, I got distracted with some other boring stuff. <laughs> um, but when, when any teacher teaches anything, I think it's normal that if they taught for a while, which I have now, uh, you tend to form almost like tenets, <laughs> you know, or kind of rules, like the, your own stone tablet of, of, of guidelines or whatever that I, you end up quoting a lot or talking about. And I think that's healthy because gradually as you build this kind of your own tenets or your own sort of rules for practice, I think they really sort of start to make you an individual. I think that's where as a teacher you sort of start to come into your own, um, sort of your own realm, you know, find yourself. Because when you first start teaching, you have to adopt the rules of the person who taught you. They will have their key principles that they believe are very important. Um, and then, of course, you, you repeat those because you don't really know how to teach yet. But then gradually, after a while, you start to form your own experiences. So I don't mean the principles of the practice. That's different as in, you know, how to hold your head or organize your body or how to move it or something like that. I mean the other principles that are kind of guidances in a more abstract way for the practice in general. So for me, these guidances are around how to, how to make the practice work as efficiently as possible. Hmm. How do I explain this? All right, put it this way. If you're going to approach an art, say 100 people do Qigong, uh, this, or rather, the 100 people do the same Qigong exercise. And maybe they got, I don't know, same kind of height, some kind of age. Maybe they're all the same gender. They're clones, basically, or whatever. They're just very similar people doing this exercise. Maybe similar levels of health. So say you have that, which, which I have had, actually. I have had groups where there are clumps of similar people, I would say, with many of their attributes, and that everybody has individual qualities, but then, of course, there's some things that are shared. So if, if you have... All those hundred people do the exercise. Why don't all 100 of them succeed, for want of a better word? Why don't they all master the art? Why don't they all get the major benefit of the exercise? Because every exercise you do, every practice, should lead to something. If that thing doesn't arise, the outcome doesn't come out of the practice, then it hasn't worked or you haven't done very well at it. So if all those people were doing the same thing and they didn't get the same outcome, then there's a variable in place. And I think that that applies to everything we do, every single practice. So the first thing I always ask my teachers when I see them, it's been a while since I had a new teacher. I've been with the same one for nearly 10 years now. But back in the days where I was meeting new teachers all the time, more and more, I guess I still do now, as in I don't study with these guys, but when I go to meet someone within a tradition, I often do a, a sort of a, a meeting to see what they're doing. So I guess it still happens now. So even if I don't then go on to study with this person, I, I just get to know them a bit, see what the, how their art works, something I still find very interesting to meet new lineages and what have you. And one of the first things I ask them is, you know, what is the, how do you get good at this? You know, that's question one. I don't ask where to put my foot or, blah, blah, or history or lineage. Some people are obsessed with history of stuff. I don't care. I just ask, what are the keys to getting good? What are the keys to achieving mastery in your opinion? And then my second question is always, what are the things that get in the way of achieving mastery? What are the likely problems that will arise? That's it. I mean, to be honest, if I ask those two questions, I've discovered that over the years to every teacher I've seen, generally from those two questions alone, I will cut through quite successfully to the useful information that they have to share. And that was something I learned to do because if you're going to meet teachers, you have limited time with them, or you're going to meet high-level practitioners, you've got limited time with them. I want to be as pithy as I possibly can, as succinct with my questioning to get the most out of that, that meeting. So this was what I always asked. And one of the things that I was always answered is, what does it take to get good at this? Like They would always basically share with you straight away. You could see whether they listed it as that or not, because they've mastered their arts. Here came their principles their principles to practice. And I, I found that the teachers who had a more, 
succinct or solidified set of principles towards how to practice were the ones people got better results from. So I saw this and I went away. And I realized that many teachers, including myself when I was younger and less experienced, didn't have principles of how to get good. So all they were doing was just sharing the system. So if you sh that's what I mean. You go back to that. If I share 100 people, I share them the system. Why don't they all become masters? And you might just say, oh, practice. No, it's not true. I know people that practice ridiculous amount of hours and don't master it or even become an expert or even become that good, sadly, in some cases, despite their personal effort. So the system itself is not doing it, right? The system is needed, but it's not the be all and end all. But the teachers that were better or had a greater understanding of how to make these things work always had a second set of principles behind, which was their teaching principles. So when I first started to see this, I went away and I looked at how I taught. And I realized I didn't have any principles <laughs> to how to teach. My principles were just train harder, follow the exercises, doesn't work. So I had to formulate gradually over a long period of time a set of rules and a set of principles to teach people how to practice and how to approach these arts. So this take, took us on to a discussion from the discussion of America and media and everything. It took us to a point of discussing one of these key rules, which is really to understand that in any exercise, as basic as it sounds, you must understand the cause, the effect, and the conditions. That's it. Cause, the effect, and the conditions. If you understand the cause, you understand the effect or the outcome, and you understand the conditions, you're a long way into making an exercise work. But even though that sounds like a simple model, if you don't apply that model to your practice, you're definitely hampered to a certain degree. You are slowed down in your practice. Um, and, and even when I've explained this model to people, they've gone, yeah, yeah, that's obvious. And then I've asked them, well, okay, well, look, how do you practice? And then when they talk back to me their principle, it doesn't match this rule, so therefore they're doing it wrong. So I want to explain this rule, because I think if you can put any of your practices, any of your exercises through this filter of cause, conditions, effect, or cause, conditions, outcome, you can normally make them work a lot better, and your progression through the arts is a lot more efficient. So let me explain those three terms. The cause. The cause of an exercise is normally the exercise itself. So the causes are the things you do. So it might be a seated exercise with no movements. So that might be how you breathe, or it might be what you're concentrating on, or it might be whatever exercise, what you're chanting, who knows, that's your cause. When it's a moving exercise, it might be a form, okay, or it might be a sequence or whatever, it could be a standing posture. That is your cause. Now within the cause, there are various principles that are important. So your principle of how you stand, how you breathe, how you move, how you line up your body, whatever. That's the cause. The effect is the outcome, which is what is that exercise leading to? Because each exercise or cause that you do, seated, standing, moving, doesn't matter, laying down, whatever you're doing, whatever cause you do should lead to an outcome. So that means most exercises are, contrary to what you're normally told, they are, well, they have a finite end. It doesn't mean they can't always be refined, but they definitely have a place where you've done the cause long enough to lead to the outcome or lead to the effect. And often within a system which has a series of parts, certainly the beginner or basic level stuff should have the outcome fairly easily defined so that you know, I do the cause until the effect or the outcome arises. Once I have done this cause, till this effect arises, I will normally need more causes. Perhaps sometimes the outcome, the effect, becomes the key to the next cause. So like a chain, this is how a linear progression of the arts unfold, right? So your first question with any exercise, or the first principle for me is, do you know what the desired outcome of that exercise is? Now that desired outcome might be something simple. It relaxes my body. It might be something simple like it opens a particular joint. It might be something more complex, like it initiates a energetic or chemical change in the body that is this, you know? It doesn't matter. There are varying degrees of complexity within an effect, but I must know what the effect or the outcome of a cause is, or the cause won't work. It just won't. There's something about the way that your intent or your mind interacts with what you're doing, meaning that for most people, if they don't know what the outcome is, it, it rarely arises. And I've met people that have done, well, I'm not exaggerating, 50 years. You know, I've met people who've trained a lot longer than me, um, because they're older and they started as kids and 
50 years of practices or 50 years of this exercise, 50 years of that exercise, and then didn't really get much <laughs> to be, I'm trying to be polite, like nothing arose. And now, of course, I'm not saying there's everybody. There's other people that get really good effects, but I've known people who haven't. And often when I've spoken to these people, they've committed the first error, which is they didn't know what the outcome was. That I'm like, why do you do this? Because I was told to, or because it's the system, or it's the method. Okay, but what is the outcome of what you're doing? And, and sometimes there's almost like a kickback, a sort of mental buffer against me because I don't even like the idea of there being an outcome. It's too goal-orientated, which is unspiritual or something. Goal-orientated is the enemy and blah, blah, blah. That might be true at later levels, but while you're trying to do a basic exercise, there should be a goal, there should be an outcome. So I always get people to try to identify the outcome and whether they're doing my system or another system, once they've kind of identified it, you can already see they progress quicker. Like it changes. There's something about the power the magic, if you want, a more woo-woo word, whatever it is, but the, the, the sort of power of intent in the way that it interacts with the thing you're doing, how it interacts with the cause, that once I know the effect, it's like your subconscious and your body know where to go. It knows how to guide itself towards the outcome, and it's not auto-suggestion, it's something deeper, something about how our mind is organized to move the practice on. So you must identify the outcome and the effect, and you should be able to do this. You should be able to take whatever system you do, whether you're doing Qigong or again, praying mantis or, I don't know, whatever people do, you know, meditation, the different steps in it. You should be able to write down the different exercises you've been taught. It might be a good exercise for some of you to do. You should be able to, on a piece of paper, write down all the different parts from basic Jiben Gong foundation methods, that is, through to more advanced techniques. You should be able to write it down and then also list at least the first desired outcome of each of those exercises. Doesn't mean that's the only outcome, but at least I know that I am starting to transform in the right direction. Maybe it leads to a particular gin or something like that. Who knows? It might be something more abstract, but you should be able to list it. So once I can write them all down, if I don't know the outcome for a particular exercise, I don't know the effect that arises from the cause, I already know there's a weak spot in my training there. There is the weak link. That's the one I'm not going to get to work because I don't know what it's for. So I don't agree with this whole thing like, oh, I hear this all the time. My master said, don't ask questions, just do. It's wrong. Okay? They either are trying to hamper your progress or they don't know themselves. It's generally my experience, neither which are helpful. You don't want your progress hampered, not by the person who's trying to supposedly teach you, and you also want someone who knows what they're doing. Um, practicing blindly is not wise. So that's the cause and the effect. Now the other error Second error is to try to train the outcome or the effect and not the cause. So for example, and this is another intent thing. How about, um, okay, how about I have an exercise that builds the Dantian? Or maybe I have three or four exercises that build different things that lead to the development of the Dantian. Okay, let's keep it simple. No, no, I complicated it. Scratch that. <laughs> maybe I have an exercise that builds the Dantian. Keep it simple. The cause is the exercise. The effect or the outcome is the Dantian being built. So if I sit there doing this exercise and I'm constantly thinking I'm building the Dantian, I'm building the Dantian, I'm building the Dantian, that's focused on the outcome, that's focused on the effect. The weird thing is the cause won't work because you are focused on the effect. It's odd. It's like the, the power of intent once again works against you. So instead of working to build the Dantian, what I do is first I identify the cause that leads to that effect and then I only practice the causes. So once I know the exercise, I don't worry about the Dantian. It's okay. I just keep doing the cause until the Dantian develops. Once the Dantian has developed, I know that the cause has led to the effect. Might sound like splitting hairs, but it's huge. It's like the first advice I give to people when they're trying to get a system to work. Identify if you're practicing the causes. Uh, or if you're practicing the effects, this is why you don't hunt the outcomes. So what you should do is know what the outcome is and then forget it. Leave it in your subconscious, you know. Don't let it mar your training, you know. Then I just train the cause till it arises and it's fine. The power of the mind is massive, absolutely huge. There's a big difference between I'm now building the Dantian or I am now doing this exercise that I know leads to building the Dantian. They sound like the same, but they are not. And as soon as you can forget that outcome and focus more on the cause and just lose yourself in the causes, you will get results. I've seen people manage to transform long periods of 
a plateau, do you know what I mean? Like flat in their practice just by adopting this rule. So that's the cause and the effect. And I should be able to do that for most things. Push hands, for example. A lot of people are chasing the effects. Push hands, push hands, trying to issue the gin. Push hands, push hands, trying to move my opponent. Push hands, push hands, trying to uproot the other guy. That's the outcome. So when I'm trying to uproot, trying to fudge in, trying to whatever, those are outcomes. So instead what I do is I look at the causes, which is really me and what I'm doing. So when I'm touching and I'm just applying the causes and the principles from my art until it neutralizes, the outcome, the effect, is often that the other person is uprooted. And it's huge. Again, if I'm pushing hands and I'm going to uproot this person, I try that I'm trying to do the effect, trying to do the outcome. I'm focused on the wrong end. The tail is wagging the dog. It often doesn't arise because I'm not focusing on the thing I can control, which are the causes. Now, in something like push hands, I've seen many people stuck for a long time because of this. They're always trying to do the outcomes. So cause and effect or cause and outcome, whatever you want to call it, that's a really important one to study. So the last part of my, uh, another one of my rambles. <laughs> mm. On practice, that's weird. Bottle water that tastes like rubber. So the last part of my ramble really on the Qigong training and this principle is that now we have the cause and we have the outcome or the effect. It already enables us to organize our mind a little bit better. We then have the next bit, which are the conditions. So the conditions are the things that are applied to that cause to mean it creates the right effect or outcome. So if, for example, I know the causes. Okay, let's go back to our 100 people. Maybe I give 100 people the same causes. And we've done the mental exercise of separating cause and effect or cause and outcome. And now we, I, we know. So there is a, those 100 people have managed to do this. So they've organized their intention or organized their E, organized that background framework of their mind a lot better than they had before because now we have cause and effect outlined. So they're practicing the causes and not training the effects. They're doing really good, but still all 100 of those people don't get it to the same degree. Some will get it better than others. Now, of course, we could discount things like health, body, those are factors, of course, but if we pretend those aren't a factor, there's another thing which are the conditions, the conditions that exist. Because each person's conditions are not the same, and of course, I'm leaving the body for the moment. If the conditions are not the same, then the cause doesn't lead to the same effect. Sometimes the conditions are neutral, so they don't get involved. Sometimes the conditions are positive, so they assist the cause leading to the effect. Sometimes the conditions are negative, meaning they literally prevent the cause leading to an effect. So even though we know the cause and we practice it, the conditions are in the way. So the conditions are like a middleman, you know? Cause, effect, fucking conditions. Slap there right in the middle, like a gateway we need to pass through, middle link on the chain. The conditions are you. Your, the only thing that, that is the deciding factor in this is Basically, it's your personality or your emotions. It's really what it is, your thoughts or whatever, like you, your identity that gets in the way. So the next stage, once you know the cause and the effect, is then to identify what are the conditions that are either in my way or the conditions that need developing. What are the things that need to change about me in order to get that exercise to work? And it, it's funny when I talk about these that people think, oh, that's a bit woolly or a bit you know, abstract or beside the point. But obviously those, those conditions we're talking about, who you are, have been identified by and been a major part of all spiritual traditions since the dawn of spiritual traditions. You only have to pick up a classical textbook or, or a religious book. You could pick up the Bible or, or the Quran or whatever. You know, you could pick up those or as, just as easily as you could pick up a Buddhist or, or Taoist book. Now, if you look through them, look at the, the weighting, the balance of what they discuss. Even if you have a, a system that discusses, you know, like an alchemy book that has methods, say, or a Qigong book that has methods, or even if you're able to take your Bible and you have this esoteric knowledge, it means you can spot the methods contained within it, because of course there are methods hidden within the text in a very metaphorical fashion. If you can, even if you can understand what they are, you have to understand that a lot of the book is actually about the conditions more than anything else, because it's con they're constantly talking to you about what? Your conduct your behavior, isn't it? You have precepts, you have guidance, you have rules, you have ways to live, you have ways to think. They're talking about who you are because what you put out and what you do often sort of reinforces or is magnified back into your self-identity.
So these things that I think sometimes are thinking are just, I think people kind of discard them as like ethical, moral mind control things that I don't want to get involved in. You know, and I, I just want to do the method. I, don't, I read this bit in this Taoist sage where he said, I have to live like this, but whatever, I'll do the method. You don't understand that those things they're advising are not just because they tend to make you a better person. They're not just because they feel they had a kind of societal or community responsibility to purport these kind of ways of living, because they're normally beneficial to, to society in general. They recognized that these were also a part of what the conditions were. So your identity, your conditions are always going to be present and they're always going to be involved in you trying to transfer the causes to the effects. <laughs> I hope that made sense. It's difficult to explain. So what it means is, and it's a big topic, you know, I, I only want to do a brief podcast on this, but it's almost a big topic in its own right to just break this all down. But it's, it's kind of like from the cultivation point of view, you can't ignore who you are. I, I can't avoid who I am. I am me. I'm, I have to live with this sort of fucking time every day for 42 years, you know. And <laughs> that person that you're with, that person you are, that is always going to be a condition that's there. Even if I have the most advanced secret level 72 method that I learned from some, usually a Facebook forum that people learn from, whatever. But say, <laughs> just being mean, if you go and learn the actual method you got the most secret advanced in it or method from an authentic teacher maybe you have that maybe i have that i've got that i've got that method when i practice it and i'm doing the causes it's still in me it's still being passed through the conditions of me the conditions of me or the conditions of me my identity my feelings so those conditions are always mixing with the causes to then dictate how effectively the outcomes or the effects rise so it means as a practitioner, I can't ignore that, so I have to be a cultivator. Therefore, self-development and self-adjustment have to be taken into consideration. Why do I do these things? Why am I so reactive? Where is my, what's my reactivity based upon? What are the key emotional filters I see my life through? Why is my behavior based in that? What are my preferences about? Which bits of my views are given from outside and what do I really think? Because as daft as it sounds, you might think that they're beside the point, but they make your conditions. They are the thing that distorts your practice. So the job of a cultivator, a sincere cultivator who wants the most out of their practice, is to look at themselves deeply and see if those conditions are helpful or unhelpful for the practice. And as much as anything, a role of the teacher or even the tradition should be not to tell you how to live, you know, I don't think that's right, or how to think or how to feel. No one should do that. I don't like that level of control that's unhealthy. It's cult-like, isn't it? But a teacher or a tradition should at least be able to have a discussion with you about who you are, and maybe at least point you in the direction of qualities, I'm trying to be careful with my words, qualities that are helpful for you in your development, actions that are helpful in your development, and qualities and actions that are unhelpful with regards to what you're doing. And generally you find that they're mental qualities you would imagine. So when I'm discussing these kind of things with people I'm teaching, I won't tell them how people have to live their life. That's up to them. It's not my business. But I will discuss clear negative things. I will discuss the nature of anger, jealousy, um, you know, sadness, depression, being triggered easily, kind of emotional reactivity. These kind of things that I think are very archetypally negative anyway, so I don't think it's difficult for me to discuss these kind of concepts. But we explore and we look at the root of what these things are and the root of where they, why they arise within us. So the teaching that I try to give is like a practical lesson, then we practice it, but also the discussions, the theory. Sometimes people can't really see how when we talk about things, they don't see that it's directly related to the practice. So like you told me the method, I just want to go and do it. Why are we discussing the nature or the root of anger? And it's only when people train a while that they understand or come to understand that what I'm trying to share are the things that are making your conditions unhelpful. Because once I make the conditions helpful, which are generally things that will make you feel better anyway, in a, in a way, then the causes are passed through a healthier filter of the conditions and that leads to the correct outcome or the effect. <laughs> That's a bit wordy, maybe. <laughs>
<laughs> bit of a long-winded way of explaining it, perhaps. But that is my one of my key principles with regards to getting the most out of your training. So my advice to you, whether you take it or not, of course, it's only advice. It's not not an order. Can't order you to do shit through a internet, mobile phone, can I? Um, but my advice is um, really to try to look at that, maybe try to apply it to your practice, and then, of course, how you interact with your practice. And if you start to break down a system like that, it's much easier to progress, much faster. People who don't identify the causes and the effects, and people who don't understand the conditions that are helpful or unhelpful within any given exercise or practice, tend to flounder a bit, you know? Like, they take a lot longer to do something, they wander in the wilderness, they plateau. And often if they pass what they're doing through this filter, through this principle, through this kind of idea, they'll progress a lot quicker. Um, you know, life's only so long. Everyone always tells me there's no rush. And it's like, well, no, it's not a total rush, but we are getting older. <laughs> and these practices are uneasy. So maybe we should try to do them as efficiently as we possibly can. So I'll leave it there. That was, yeah, I don't know. I didn't plan this talk. <laughs> it's just what came out of came out of my mind while I'm sat here and also kind of came out I guess of the um, teaching I did in America because this was something we discussed um, a fair bit you know I was, I was teaching for 11 or 12 11 11 days straight it was long <laughs> and some people were surprised especially people who've done the Academy train with me online which is when I teach online it's still still correct the principles are there and um, still similar material but it's a lot harder in person um, so some people who have only done online training with are quite surprised how physically and energetically and psychologically demanding in-person training could be. Um, Lotus Singles is not an easy school to train in, so it was really interesting seeing that. Um, but yeah, it, those 11 days of doing that, it really, uh, yeah, these kind of ideas came out and we discussed it a bit. Uh, so yeah, thought I'd share that. Other than that, I had a great time this time in America, actually. I really enjoyed the course. Uh, I enjoyed seeing all the Americans that I've taught before and also seeing the meeting some new people, which was really cool. They're really nice. Everyone's always really cool and really nice. So that was great. Um, it was a real pleasure. And then after, after that, I went down to New Orleans, uh, which wasn't the most restful place with hindsight. <laughs> you know, like after teaching for 11 days, you want somewhere a bit chilled. New Orleans wasn't the best choice especially Bourbon, Bourbon, Bourbon Street. Uh, and uh, I checked out quite a lot of the music there, a lot of late nights um, and yeah, cutting loose. But I had fun, it was good. New Orleans is an interesting place. I got to see, a, he, called him, he called himself a kunas, which I, <laughs> I'd never heard that as a term. And I, I think it's really racist. I don't know, maybe it's not, I don't know. But it was a self-imposed term by a, 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 <laughs> a local person who lives in the swamps. That's what they call themselves down here. Um, but I got to see them sort of kissing an alligator, which was very interesting. It, it sort of, it matched various stereotypes I have of people down in that area. Uh, they were confirmed. But it, it was a good place, it was interesting. Uh, would I come back? Not sure. Don't know if I'd come back to New Orleans. Maybe, but I definitely had fun there. But yeah, thanks to everybody who came on the America course, if you're listening to this. Um, I had a great time. Uh, spending those days with you and uh, I look forward to when I see you next year basically when I come back to the USA but for now I got to get to Sweden because we've got our big summer camp coming up this year where there's 200 of us oh my god 200 of us I think in the in the forests <laughs>